Welcome into the Keon Sports Podcast, Wrestling with Legends. Our guest today from WCW fame, Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell. Sit back, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, Buff Bagwell. On the hotline now, Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell. Uh, his days here um, talking about legendary career in wrestling as we are outside on the beautiful uh, Keon Sports deck here. Thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Bagwell. Oh man, thank you so much. My gosh, it's, these guys kind of things I love doing because I just love I love talking about the career and it's just uh, I had a really good, fortunate, great career and um, um and just uh, I enjoy talking about it. So thanks for having me. Oh yeah, definitely our pleasure on this one. Um, I want to start kind of from the beginning with uh, GWF. You were there at a time with guys like Raven and Barry Horowitz. What were some of your uh, fonder memories of working in the GWF as the Handsome Stranger? Um, I thought it was great. Uh, That's where I learned um, my craft. That means several times me and my wife would be driving home and just not talk for the first 20 minutes and then and me go like what is it why can't I figure this out you know and then global happened GWF and I remember going out there the very first day and it was I was in Texas it was in Dallas Texas and um, when I got there um I walked into the locker room and the heels and the baby faces were all in one locker room. And I went, wait a second. I go, you mean tell me you guys can kind of talk about a little bit before you go out and map it out a little bit? And this, and that's what it didn't miss is because we were being we were green as green as can be and going out doing matches and not having any idea what we were doing. And so we looked stupid. We looked dumb. industry and that was just just a few just a, a few talks just a little bit of hey I'll start and spot just a little communication to get the match going to make it look very smooth and, and, and much smoother and much better so I learned tremendous amount from high stuff A. Gilbert and guys like that at the same time so it was great you showed up um, in WCW a little bit after that during kind of the final days of Jim Hurd running the company with some really crazy gimmicks at that time. Guys like Big Josh, PN News, the Hunchbacks, just some really crazy gimmicks going on. Did that give you any kind of hesitation about joining WCW and, and maybe the vision that they had with, with all the crazy gimmicks going on? Um, No, to be honest with you, I was really upset that they didn't want to give me a gimmick. Um, when Dusty hired me, he said, look, baby, he goes, he goes, look, he said, look, brother, he said, your teeth, you got such pretty teeth. That's, I, I remember him saying that. He always said, you got such pretty teeth. 
He goes, and the way you look and being young, you're going to be rookie of the year and you're going to... He's going to school and going, I don't need to go to school. I'm better than this. I'm, I know I'm ready right now. I'm ready right now. And and they came to me and they go, hey, Barry Wyndham, and Barry probably don't even know this, but Barry Wyndham tore his knee up and they had to get a guy to fill in for his, for his spot. Not necessarily for Barry's spot, but just for a spot, you know, that, you know, kept, you know, one, one match short of a, of a card. And, they, and then they picked me to do it. So I knew right then and there, this is a chance for me to show I could do this. You know, I could do it. And so, you know, um, I did do it. I did prove myself. And 30 years later, here I still am, you know. Now, a few years into WCW, they began teaming you up. And you, you really you, you took advantage of that tag team division we're going to talk about a few of the partners that you had here in a second. But you, you found a home with the tag division. One of your earlier partners was Too Cold Scorpio. You guys won the world titles from the Nasty Boys. A kind of a two-part question for you here. What was it like working with Too Cold Scorpio? And what was it like working with the Nasty Boys who had a bit of a rougher reputation? Yeah, uh, two things. To answer both of them, real good questions, both of them. And uh, number one is working with Too Cold was definitely my, the biggest thing that's ever happened to me because he was very good. He was very great at, at, at wrestling and he was able to teach and show me things in the tag world that created me to be very good in the, the tag team world. And that's one reason why I think I never had like a, TV title. I never had a a world title. I never. It wasn't necessarily because of my ability. It was. It was because I just fit such a great role in the tag team division, and these guys needed somebody else to work. You know, your Steiner boys, your Harlem Heats. You know, your Pretty Wonderfuls, and all of a sudden, income. You know. Stars and Stripes, Too Cold and, and Marcus Alexander Bagwell, um, American Males, um, you know, it just it just a whole a whole new thing kicked in, and it really did make me a great great tag team wrestler, which also made me a great a great wrestler. Period, because I'm the only guy to ever have six world tag team championships with five different partners and let me tell you bro out of those five guys none of them wrestle alike so i had to make sure i made the adjustments to make it not that i'm better than anybody it's just i had to make the adjustments to make it a world tag team championship tag team and i did so by by doing that and by learning and um i just i, I had a blast of tag team wrestling i think tag team matches 
should be your best card on the match every show. Um, you've got, you know, five guys without counting um, uh, managers or, you know, valets. So you got five guys that got to be on the exact same page and you got to pull it off with five different brains going five different directions. And as far as the Nasty Boys go, they loved me and they loved Too Cold. So it made it a lot of fun. But at first, bro, this is the Nasty Boys. A couple guys will beat your brains out, you know. And I'm scared to death at first. But then when they really turned to seeing how good me and Scorpio really were, um, it, it really made things just so much better, and we had so much fun. So it was a great, great uh, time in my life uh, with with, uh, with the Nasty Boys and Too Cold, and with Missy Hyatt, which got me into business, and she was their manager, and so it was just a great, 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 a great time in my life. You know, one of the guys you teamed up with, you mentioned him here there briefly, was the Patriot. The reason why I bring up the Patriot, we had him on our show uh, last summer, about a year ago, but right before he passed away, we, we had him on the show, and then unfortunately, about two weeks later, he, he passed away. Um, he really came across as a stand-up human being, uh, just a great guy. What were some of your memories of working with him? Because he, he seemed very talented in the ring as well. Yeah, he, he's another guy that took me to another level. you got to realize my order of defense were Marcus Alexander battled by myself, then they figured out that I really could work, so they put me with Too Cold. And, and Too Cold got fired or released or whatever. And then... So great in the ring and knowledgeable. And I just, you know, just hitched, just hitched up onto him and just learned so much more about the business and so much more about how to, you know, treat people and locker rooms and just just everything Missy had already got me ready for. He kind of confirmed it and made it really, really, really a great, great tag team um, to the point where we won the tag team titles twice. And that's why it's six with five uh, because uh, we won it twice uh, uh, with uh, Stars and Stripes. And but he was a great, great person to be tagged up with and a great person to show me the ropes and to show me at the stage I was at because he had been through all of those stages to show me how to do it, how to do it the best way and the right way. And before it was over, I was calling all of our matches and, you know, and it, we just loved to let me do it because I came up with good ones and I just really, really caught on to the tag team wrestling. I really did. Did he wear his mask on the road? Like when you guys would road trip together to the next town, you know, when you got out of the, the car and went to the hotel or whatnot, like how protective was he of the kayfabe of the gimmick of wearing the mask? Um, He was big on it, man. And that's when kayfabe was so huge. So, I mean, he always, I mean, he didn't tie it off. But like to get out of the to get out of the, the car to go inside, I mean he just he would he put the mask on, and uh, I mean it, it was it was a major 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 deal, 
and um, and he took it on very seriously. And it made me learn so much about kayfabe and stuff, which has gone so far down nowadays. It's not even funny, but at the same time, it just, you know, the people were kind of tired of being made fun of almost like they didn't know. So it was time to, you know, give them an understanding that, well, here's how it works. But, you know, at the same time, you guys got to trust us by being uh, us being honest. And you got to trust us on this is a much harder business than it looks much harder. So I think the two combined really did work. And it just it just made the business get bigger and bigger and better and better. You know, years later, um, the NWO and Kevin Nash were part of a storyline where Rey Mysterio lost his mask. A lot of people regretted that decision, and then Rey Mysterio would go on to the WWE. He'd put the mask right back on. Do you remember if there was any kind of scuttlebutt behind the scenes about Kevin Nash being the guy to uh, to get his mask after he had just ended Goldberg's streak? Was there a lot of politics going on with all those decisions being made? Um, I don't remember any. I remember, the only thing I remember was when, when, um, Ray Mysterio went to the, uh, I think they were called the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or something like that. Filthy Animals. Filthy Animals, yeah, Filthy Animals. And, um, and, and, and Ray Mysterio came to me with my overall gimmick because I was the first one to ever have really overalls in the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Kennedy goes, look, do you mind if I, you know, you don't really use them anymore. Do you mind if I use your, your, um, your, you know, your, you know, take, you know, your um, overalls. I said, shoot, no, man, don't, don't worry about it. Go for it. But I really think what happened, mainly what I remember happening is that uh, Ray started losing his hair. And when Ray started losing his hair, which we all do, we've all had problems with, I got problems with it, of course, we all try to hold on our hair. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, a Ray Mysterio with a mask on and hiding that or, you know, or, or trying to, you know, you know, act like you had hair and you don't, it, it was a big, a big to do. And the same time as when they decided to go back to the mask. And I was always told it was because he was, you know, losing his hair. Interesting. Yeah. I never would have knew that. So I wanted to ask you this one too. And, and thank you again for joining us here with Keon sports media group. Um, you know, you're, you're in WCW for quite some time, right? You've made several tag team partners champions with you. All of a sudden, in the summer of 1994, and then into the fall of 1994, Hulk Hogan shows up, and then the Macho Man. These two guys, two legends of our business, two of the greatest of all time, but guys with a lot of baggage, came in with a lot of politics. While you're there, a young guy in WCW, and two veterans like this come in, what was your initial reaction to Hulk Hogan and Macho Man being a part of the company? And what was you know pretty much everybody's reaction behind the scenes? Well, uh, behind the scenes were great. Uh, everybody thought, oh my God, this is what we need. We need, you know, we need, you know. But keep in mind, our, our entire race was 
trying to be, you know, WWF, you know, and uh, we were constantly falling short of beating the WWF. And and so when that came out, you know, the Michael Macho came and we had all the stars with us. There was no reason why we were still getting beat, but we were. And then all of a sudden, in comes NWO and, you know, uh, it was lights out. And it was for, w, for WWE. Um, we were a much bigger uh, fan base. And, and for the first time, people knew the words WCW instead of the WWF. And it just gave us a whole new uh, picture on everything. And But I do remember the very first trip we took to Germany when, when Hulk came in. It was a very weak kind of tour. And we thought, oh, God, this may not be the right answer. This may not, this may not work. But at the same time, it worked tenfold over. And Hulk Hogan was exactly what we needed. And Macho Man. And all of a sudden, we had all these big names. And we're carrying on big matches with a deep, deep bench. I mean, we had a very deep bench um, as far as A talent, B talent, C talent. And that's, I think, was, that what made us even bigger was we had such a great depth in our, in our, our talent. And, uh, but then again, it all started with Hulk and Macho and then, you know, and then down from there. And then we became just, you know, one of the best. And then, um, then all of a sudden we went live on Nitro and after that it was like a little bit of back and forth and then finally we beat him for 83 consecutive weeks, you know. Who was responsible for that? Eric Bischoff, Hulk Hogan, or just everything, the, the current climate culture of wrestling? And, and when I say responsible, why do you think you guys won 83 straight weeks? I, I just think it was just everything. Um, I th- I do think we were a better program. I do think we had better matches. I do think we had better talent at that stage. I mean, you realize they had lost Scott Hall. They had lost Kevin Nash. They had lost Macho. They had lost, you know, uh, uh, Hulk Hogan. They had lost the Nasty Boys. They had lost all these guys that were with us now. And at the same time, we were really, really, really good. And nobody just knew it because nobody really watched us or gave us a chance. So I think it was just uh, a tremendous uh, attribute about, you know, and don't get me wrong, there was things we did that helped out a lot. Like Rick Rude came out and announced, you know, what the WWF show was going to be about that night. And, you know, don't don't watch that show. Watch ours, and so there was several things that took place. But regardless of what took place, we ended up being, you know, the number one wrestling company, and uh, and it just just gave us all a bunch of, you know, um, you know, excitement and just a lot of notoriety on being, you know, the best company in the business now instead of being in the second position. So I'm going to ask you this question, and it's going to show a bit of my age, okay, because I'm 40 years old, so I'm a little bit older here. But 
you, we, we talked about Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man, right? Somebody in the midst of them for a large part of their career was Miss Elizabeth. Miss Elizabeth, to me, growing up, was like my ultimate crush, right? You said you know, Missy Hyatt's up there as well, but, you know, Miss Elizabeth was like the, uh, every, you know, wrestling fan's dream, right? What, what was she, I mean, my God, was she beautiful. What was she like to be around? Was she like quiet and, and, and sweet like her character on TV? Or what was she like? Because no one ever talks about her. And that kind of blows my mind. Well, let me tell you, uh, for about three to four years, it was Lex Luger driving. I was in the passenger seat. There was a cooler in the back seat. And then right behind me was Miss Elizabeth. And we traveled like that for years and had a great time. And I got to know Miss Elizabeth really well. And, um, you know, then Lex, you know, Lex started, you know, seeing Miss Elizabeth and, and, um, and had to go to Macho and make it all worth, make it okay that there wasn't heat between him and Mach. And, um, and so it just, um, it just all kind of panned out to being, you know, us three guys on the road having a, having a good time and uh, just making a great career for all of us. Um, who approached you with the idea of turning on Scotty Riggs and joining the NWO? Did you go to Eric Bischoff and the creative team, or did they come to you? No, they came to me. Kevin Nash came to me, and me and Kevin go way back because we were both Atlanta boys. And so Kevin Nash came to me and said, hey, look, he said, uh, do you want to... He said, how's everything going? I go, well, it's going great. I said, you know, get the American Health thing going, and it's going good. And he said, uh, well, would you like to join the NWO? And I said, are you kidding? I said, hell yeah, I do. And uh, so I knew, we knew that the numbers were dated on, on Scotty Riggs being, you know, with, with me going to NWO. But then again, Scotty still made a hell of a career out of himself by going to the clock and everything else. So he still got a good run out of it. And, but still ultimately he knew it could not be good that, you know, that Buff Bagwell was leaving the American Males, Marcus Alexander Bagwell was leaving the American Males and going to you know, the NWO as Buff Bagwell. That was not exactly, you know, pluses for for Scotty Riggs. But at the same time, he really did a great job and he stuck in there and he was a great worker, one of the best tropics in the business and just a good worker overall. And he, he made it through and it stuck, stuck, you know, he had as long as he could. So I have a question for you that I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe you've never been asked in any kind of shoot interview because I think this is kind of a funny one, but something as a wrestling fan, I always kind of geeked over. They had a concept in WCW called Hog Wild. Then it became Road Wild. And obviously it was at the the Sturgis Rally um, in uh, South Dakota, the Black Hills. For fans at home watching it, it was really cool. Like I enjoyed the hell out of those shows. But as a wrestler... Was it tough? Like, what were the amenities? Like, were, were there was there even a locker room you could get changed? Or was it just, like, bare bones, nothing back there? Because I've heard people say there wasn't even, like, you know, running water. 
Well, do do you know why it went from hop wild to road wild? I do not. The reason why it went from hog wild to road wild is because, believe it or not, here's a bunch of badass, you know, Harley riding. All of us had bikes. We loved, you know, bikes and we loved Harley. And for some reason, they didn't want anything to do with us. And they legally owned the name Hog. So when they didn't want anything to do with us, we had to switch our name from Hog Wild to Road Wild because they owned the name Hog. And uh, they just did not want anything to do with us, which we couldn't believe. Why would you not want? A bunch of Steiners and Bagels and Lugers and Hogan's, and, you know, riding up on Harleys, you know. Instead, you, you know, you make us change uh, the hog wild into the road wild. And, uh, but we had to do it legally, and that's why we did it. So that's where it came from, is they owned hog wild and did not want us, no, they didn't want nothing to do with us. And what was it like working those actual shows, though? Oh, it was great, dudes, and Sturgis, and just whether it was Hog Wild or Road Wild, it made a difference to us. It was still super cool, and we're down on our bikes, and we got Rodman and Leno, and 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 just all these great matches, and you know, Carl Malone, and and just just really, 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 you know, took our product to hold their stardom uh level of just being stars and it was a lot of fun man we had a blast now, and uh, it was a lot of fun let me ask you this question here so this is something um that every single person who wrestled for wcw during this time i asked this question to because to me to me personally this is the point of the wcw versus wwf kind of monday night wars where everything changed and slowly started going back in WWF's favor. So this question I have for you is kind of long. Um, and I, I'm going to shorten it the best I can, but I'm just going to warn you it's kind of long. So here we go. The, yeah. the, the year-and-a-half-long payoff to the NWO versus WCW feud, the initial one, was Sting defeating Hulk Hogan at Starcade 1997. Everything was based upon Sting coming back after 18 months, beating Hogan at Starcade 1997. The entire thing was terrible, came off as a joke. Um, there was the fast count by Nick Patrick that wasn't a fast count. What happened? Was it Hogan playing the creative control card? Was it uh, Nick Patrick just not wanting to do the, the fast count? Did Bischoff change somebody's mind? What the hell happened? Because for fans watching at home, everybody thinks Sting's going to win. The, the match was terrible, and then Hogan beats him with a clean one, two, three, and then we're told it's a fast count. None of it made sense. What actually happened there? Um, to be honest with you, you know, you got to realize I was, I was, um, you know, friends with a lot of the, you know, all the top talent guys. I mean, Luger and Sting and all those guys loved me and had great relationships with each other. But still, there was that upper echelon of stardom 
um, which was your Hulk Hogan's and your Machas and and your guys that have been in this business for years. And I was super green. Even even though I wasn't green, I was super green compared to those guys. And so a lot of that stuff I didn't really know or understand. And so a lot of it was behind closed doors. Nobody really knew what was going on. Um, it just it just happened, and we're a part of it, and we had to go with it the best we could. So your everything you said was direct on the money. Um, it just a lot of it did not allow us to even be part of it to find out the you know the the fast count. And really, what happened? And, and 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 when you're making that kind of money, do you, do, you, do you stir the crap up by going and asking, or do you just go along with it and who cares, you know, kind of thing? And that's that's one of the things that we did was just look, let's just mind our own business, um, and you know, make the money we're making. And just be, just be, you know, part of the team the best we can, and uh, without having to know everything. So we didn't know a lot of that. A lot of that, truthfully, we didn't know. We just kind of, you know, we heard things that other people heard. But to be friends with top talent guys that I was friends with, you had to be able to know when you could ask things and know when you couldn't ask things. And so, you know, even though you're, you're considered friends, you also are considered friends because you're not bothering with deep questions. And that's one reason I fit in with all those guys is I never bothered them. I never asked them what they got paid. I didn't ask them anything like that, which kept us very tight and very close and became very good friends out of it. The the year and you know, this was something that after a couple months of Sting being the champion, they they gave the belt back to Hogan anyways. He, he wins it back in April, um, you know, from Macho Man headed for a day, then on to Hogan. But then here comes Goldberg. Why do you think a guy like Bill Goldberg took off as quickly as he did, and that they had the faith WCW had the faith in Bill Goldberg to you know Hulk Hogan puts him over cleanly at the George Dome to win the title like they did. Um, I think it's because of just they had they had Stone Cold, uh, the WWE did, and they had their you know their ball a guy that was a superstar with a goatee, and all of a sudden the WCW had their ball guy that was you know just as popular and just as over as, as Stone Cold was. But just not the worker that Stone Cold was yet, but still was in at least in the ability range of being that worker uh, in the near future. It's just um, um, we just kind of got ourselves caught in a bind with putting him on such a winning streak that we didn't know what to do. Um, it was more like okay, we've created a monster, you know, now what do we do? You know, if we continue him to win, somebody's got to beat him, because if not, you know, he's going to be unbeatable, and you can't have a wrestler that's unbeatable 
Um, so you got to make him real. And so uh, finally, he we did the thing where, you know, I ended up beating him uh, with a blockbuster. And, uh, you know, we buried him. And it was the end of his career, supposedly, and all that stuff. That was called the, for the very end of, of WCW when all that happened. And, uh, but it was just, um, we, we just basically got ourselves caught in creating a monster that worked great being, you know, the undefeated, you know, you know, nobody's ever beating the guy to, wait a minute, somebody's got to beat this guy to make him real, you know? So, um, I think just the look wise, their company had a ball-headed goatee guy, and our company now had a ball-headed goatee guy, and they both were very popular, and they both were very, very, very good at what they did, and uh, they had great entrances, and this great stuff we did with them. So it just uh, it just gave us something else to, to compete with them on. During that time, early in the 1998 into the spring, um, I believe it was. I believe it was on an episode of WCW Thunder because I remember watching it. Um, you hurt your neck pretty badly, and you were out quite some time. I mean, a very, very scary incident that could have left you paralyzed. D- yeah, during yeah. during that time, you were out. I'll, you know, I just gotta ask you: Did you watch any WWE? Uh, well, would have been WWF television at that time and see what they were doing. Um, in our locker rooms, even before I got hurt. In our locker rooms, on all the monitors were their show. And wherever they were in their locker rooms, on all of their monitors, our show was on. Because we went from 8 to 10. And they went from 9 to 11. So at 8.59, you can bet your ass, you had steam coming down from the rafters, the NWO's coming out to the ring. You had, on their channel, you had Stone Cold clanging two beers together, drinking beers. You had The Rock doing his, you know, cool interview. It just was a time that the channels were getting ready to get changed, or at least the Monday Night Wars were started. And that's what happened. And that's, you know, what made wrestling so important again and so so real to the fans again and made it to where you know this is i mean i literally watched the whole front rows several front rows be all women and turn to all dudes you know and um it just it just was really cool to see it become an all, it became it became the dude's soap opera, yep. and it was just it was just it just happened. So all your college guys were having Monday night parties, and there were you know one one was Buck, one was Hogan, one was Scott Hall, one was Nash, you know, and they and they'd run these skits and just and just run uh, and just keep us alive. And it was just a lot of fun to see guys have fun like that. So one of the things that I, um, you know, I dislike, because I love the NWO. I was a huge NWO mark, all those good things, right? But one of the things that kind of bugged me during the stretch um, was when Rowdy Piper was feuding with Hawk Hogan during that stretch because 
I thought Rowdy Piper did uh, did horrible business. He would never let Hogan pin him, get a clean win. He just never seemed to lay down for anybody, right? And all of a sudden, you come back from your neck injury. The next thing you know, you're in the storyline with Ric Flair and Rowdy Piper. And Ric Flair, to his credit, I think has put over a lot of guys. But for whatever reason, you know, Rowdy Piper just did not have that reputation. What was it like working with Piper, and was there any hesitation that he wasn't going to ever put you over or, or do business the way it should have been instead of protecting himself all the time? I, I didn't think by no means that either one of those guys would put me over, and I ended up beating him back-to-back. Um, then, though, as soon as that happened, and it was time to you know, strap the, the old sand, strap the rocket to my ass, and send me, you know, send me up you know, to the stardoms, um, was I had a match with David Flair in front of 85,000 people at the Georgia Dome. And the board goes up and it shows Buff Bagwell versus David Flair. And I'm thinking, oh, that's great. You know, I'd, I'd be a good win. And, you know, I'm now beating his dad. I've beaten him. Um, and I've beaten Roddy Piper. There's no stopping me now. There's, they're going to give me a push now, you know. And David Flair beat me in front of 85,000 people at the Atlanta Georgia Dome. And it was just like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. And, bro, this is when he was horrible. He couldn't run the ropes. He was just the red-cheeked little kid that didn't know what he was doing. And uh, it just... It just um, um, he just really didn't know what he was doing. He wasn't very good at it. And um, I went, I didn't go to Eric Bischoff on that one. I went to Rick. And I said, Rick, I go, what are you doing? I go, he's not ready for this. You know, and he, of course, he came up with something that was, I knew wasn't true. It wasn't going to happen. But I had to play along like it was. Cause you're talking to, you know, the nature boy Ric Flair, the all-time best wrestler in the history of time. And, and so I had to act like, okay, I'm leaving you. And, um, so, but still, I got, uh, I got a victory over Piper. I got a big victory over Flair, which boosted my career highly. But they could have done, again, so much more with me, and they just didn't. How frustrating and demoralizing is that when they when they pull that kind of stuff? Is it to the point where it it almost makes you want to quit? Um, it really, what upset me about the David Flair uh, him beating me was the fans. It bothered me that the fans out of eighty five thousand people, eighty thousand have you know have um, buff bagel signs. And, you know, here David Flair beats me, you know, and I mean, if I, if I would have won, the roof would have came off the place. And um, instead, they had it go the other route. And I remember hearing people, it was the longest walk back to the go position. And all I heard from people were, oh, don't worry about it, Bible, they're just messing with you, man. There's, screwing with you, you'll make it, you'll make it. And God, it just got further and further away. And I just wanted to get into that go-go position and hide. 
you know, because how I looked at it was we screwed 85,000 people out of what they wanted to see. They wanted me to see, they wanted, they wanted me to do the blockbuster, wear my little top hat, do my little strut, and do my little double bicep, and buff, I will win the match. And instead, they got screwed out of their money, out of their, um, out of their, you know, the, the win they wanted, and out of the person they wanted to get pushed, which was Buff Bagwell. And instead, you know, it didn't go the way they wanted. So I felt bad for the fans not getting what they wanted. The Attitude Era in WWF was raging at this time. One of the things they pushed was Sex Appeal with Sonny and Sable and, uh, you know, Terry Runnels, which was, uh, you know, Dustin Runnels' wife. In, in, in WCW, you guys started to, to kind of do that more so after Russo got there. Who were probably some of the most attractive, sexy females you've ever worked with in wrestling that really stood out as actual, like, stunning women? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think Miss Hyatt, um, Miss Elizabeth, I was able to be part of her uh, career. And also, uh, my biggest... One of my biggest was Medusa. I thought she was way ahead of her time and just a super, super great chick. Um, really, really, really cool. Um, knew her spot, you know, knew her role and carried it very well and just was really just uh, all the girl wrestlers to this day should have those names to thank, you know, for what they did for them, which is your Missy Hyatt's, your, you know, your Scary Sherry's, and your, you know, your um, Medusa's, and, you know, and just, it's just all those names really gave, they kind of paved the path for these wrestler, girl wrestlers now, because when I was wrestling on Night Show, we didn't have no girl wrestlers, none. And um, so it was just kind of neat to, to see them, you know, see them bust out and become popular. I think it's pretty incredible. I really do. I mean, having two daughters I myself, do. like it, they, they have some of the best matches on the card, which is just amazing. Um, what? So Vince Russo comes in uh, September-ish of 1999. How long did it take you guys to figure out that it was it was more so Vince McMahon and other people that led to the resurgence of WWF and, and not exactly Vince Russo. Right. But, but yeah, but yeah, he, he um, you know, I, I thought that it was just, um, it was time to, to let the girls, you know, it was time to, to get girls involved. And uh, Eric was good at seeing those kind of things. And uh, he was great at, you know, the NWO and being part of it. But at the same time, he was, um, it wasn't time for the girls yet, I don't think, um, to the crowd would not may have had not been for them. But then all of a sudden, they were for them. And these guys, the girls had gotten really good at their craft. And some girls had better matches than dudes. And it was just really, I was so proud of them. And, but it was great that they had a chance to, you know, go out and within their, you know, their, 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 you know, being women and being in a man's world 
all of a sudden it was not a women in a man's world. It was, you know, women in a women's world because wrestling became so different and so uh, more open and, and the girls, the girls did bring a lot to the table and showed a lot more of wrestling that could be, you know, you know, be put on television and also be a big part of our show. You mentioned Sherry Martel and also Medusa Maselli, both of which are in the WWE Hall of Fame. Why do you feel Missy Hyatt is not in it yet? Uh, why is Lex Luger not? Yeah. You know, that's, 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 that's where I go with it. It's like, I mean, I love Teddy Long to death. He's a super friend of mine. But when you can say Teddy Long is in the Hall of Fame and... Lex Luger, the total package, is not. There's something wrong there, you know. So it's just, um, you know, it is a little discouraging. But at the same time, they call the shots, and and you know, um, it'll just be time when they get time for everybody. Well, the thing about it is, you mentioned it too. Miss Elizabeth is not in it. It took them forever. Right. To, it took them forever to put Vader in it. Um, you know, Psycho Sid is not in it. Arn Anderson as a single star is not in it. So there's uh it, it is odd to me um they pick and choose. And now with AEW, the chances of some of those guys I just named, especially like an Arn Anderson, it's just less and less now. So de- definitely very, very Tony Schiavone is uh, nowhere near the WWF Hall of Fame. Um, you know, th- things like that are just crazy to me. But um looking more towards uh, you know, kind of the very end here, and I appreciate it making the time for Keon Sports today. Um, one thing that I've always seen you do is take the high road, uh, as a competitor, you know, I've listened to you do interviews, um, you've, I've never heard you really knock anybody, which is great. One, one thing that concerns me is Jim Ross on quite a few podcasts. And it seems like every time he gets a chance to tell the story, he always seems to to blame you for why uh, you didn't work out with WWE. What actually happened? I mean, you were there a very short amount of time. What well, the, the, the true the true story is um, uh, and, and, and actually in this order was we were going to wrestling school and learning and it was a big deal we had to learn uh, a ring that was two feet bigger and it did make a difference it was a big deal to learn those extra two feet to not look stupid and as I mentioned we had steel cables our ring ropes and they had ropes so our steel cables at WCW were like you know boop, boop, and shot you back to the other person where WWF kind of looked like wah, wah, you know kind of slow and uh, so it was definitely something to be go to, go to school for learn. so we at school the you know infamous you know um you know, Shane Helms fight I got into where I slapped him and he hit me in the back of the head with a, a frozen water bottle that gave me 25 staples in my head. And um, um, so we did, we, that all happened. And then um, all the guys were looking at me like, don't tell, don't tell, you know, just, because I, I was considered having a job for sure at that stage. Everybody else was digging for a job. And now to me, I didn't look at it like that. I looked at it like, I ain't got a job. 
I'm just trying to get it one. But it was under the, you know, it was out kind of in public that, you know, that me and Dallas and Booker had a job. And everybody else was having a dig. So they, um, um, so with all these eyes looking at me, here come Pitt Finley and Johnny Ornitis over to where I've been hit in the back of the head with by Shane Helms. And they're all looking at me like, please don't tell, please don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. And Pitt Finley goes, what happened, what happened? I said, I fell. And he goes, you fell? And I go, yes, I, I fell. I just slipped and fell. So I didn't tell them the story. I didn't use their doctors. I didn't cost them one red cent. I flew home that day and went straight to my own doctor and got him to cauterize my head and put 25 staples in it. And then... So I show up back to Monday Night Raw, and the first people I see is the Hardy Boys and Shane Helms. And I go, hey, Shane, what's up, man? And not one of them waved back or spoke to me. And, of course, I went directly to Johnny Ace. And I said, buddy, we got to talk. I said, I lied to y'all the other day. Here's what really happened. Blah, 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 blah. Told my whole story. And he said, okay. So he got us all together, which was 12 of us. 12 guys were hired from WCW mm -hmm. to go to the WWF. And, um, and so um, he made us all kind of shake hands and make up and, you know, get along and all that stuff. And so that same night, it comes up that me and Booker are the main event. And I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And we're in Tacoma. And I'm like, wait a minute. I go, so me and Booker are backstage going, A, why are we main event? And B, why are we doing this 5,000 miles away when next week is Atlanta? The very next week was Atlanta, and we're calling this match in Tacoma 5,000 miles away the first match of the invasion. So we knew then that something wasn't quite right. But we, knew, we didn't know what, and this wasn't good. Why would you call the first match of the invasion 5,000 miles away when you could have done it in Ted Turner's backyard. So it just didn't seem quite right. We didn't know, but it wasn't good. Uh, but still, no, we're not going to say anything because, you know, we're just rookie. We're just trying to fit into the WWF and, and uh, just be part of the team. And so I go out and wrestle Booker T with 25 staples in my head, I gotta get a sharpie and cover up my bald spot where they um, where they shaved my head to put the staples in and um, this staple it and then once again, no complaints. I use my own doctor 
And to this day, did not cost them one red cent to, to fix my head. I paid, I paid all of it myself because I just didn't want no heat. Well, after that match, it was like Wednesday, and it was Atlanta was coming up, so we had Atlanta-based towns. In other words, we always did. You always did. You know, you did. Um, you know, um, you, you you did like a like a road trip, equaling the payoff of, of Nitro. Right. And so we had like Augusta, Birmingham. Um, and another drive down, which is all three been drives for me. So my phone rings one day, and, I'm, and I know I got these shows coming up and Nitro coming up, and it's Jim Ross. And keep in mind, nobody's around. There's only God, Jim Ross, and me on this phone conversation. And he says, hey, uh, how's your head? And I said, it's fine. You know, so I didn't want to act like I was hurt. I wanted to make sure I didn't want to have any reason to get fired or released or nothing like that. And I said, hey, I, I, everything's fine. I feel great. Um, you know, um, he goes, look, he goes, we got big plans for you on Monday. He goes, in Atlanta. He goes, so we want you to stay home, rest your head, and just be ready to go on Monday. And I was like, to me, I was thrilled because I could have done the shows, no problem. But at the same time, to, to have the time off and get ready in the gym and let my head actually heal up a little bit. And I was excited, like, okay, they're, they're not mad at me now. And, uh, I thought maybe they would be mad, and they're not, so we're all good to go. Well, what took place from that was I showed up in Atlanta, and I go into a room, and I, long story short, I get fired. But they call it released. And I was like, what's the difference of being released or fired? And they had an answer, buddy. And it was... Well, if we release you, you know, we got to redo your contract. No, if, if we release you, we don't have to redo your contract. We can just bring you back in three months and we ain't got to deal with your contract. He said, if we fire you, we've got to redo your whole contract. Whole time hearing this, I'm going blah, 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 blah. This is not sounding good so when they came back with that good of an answer that quick i said start shaking hands and just be part of you know uh just be thankful that she had a run up here and you know had a good career and just shake hands and and just and try to get out of here without crying and so i um shook their hands, thanked them. They told me to call them back in three months and they would bring me back in three months. And so um, in the process of what happened in the next few weeks was the rumors like my mom called to get me out of those shows did, did not happen and was not true. Um, why 
why would somebody trying to make it in the WWF get their mother a call me to get me out of these shows when I already had wrestled main event with 25 staples in my head? Who cares now? I'm ready to go, you know? I ain't about to back out. So, and, but the, what, what I wasn't expecting is for the people to really believe it. And they did. The people really believed it because it's Jim Ross over the internet buff, troublemaker buff, you know, even though anybody that meets me or gets to know me loves me, but that's why WCW loved me so much is they knew me. The WWF didn't know me. The guys didn't know me. So they read what they read, and that's how they got to know me. And which is not a good way to meet me because it, a lot of it wasn't true. And so Jim had, through all of that, did a roundtable kind of deal where he just drilled me. And his comeback was he liked me and he was just doing his job by firing me. He was told that I had to be fired and he was just doing his job. Well, if he likes me and was just doing his job, then why did he go on that that round table with Bischoff and, and Graham and Michael P.S. Hayes and um, there's a couple other guys and, 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 and just and just ripped me apart. And so, you know, it just is a lot of, you know, um, you know, just a lot of, you know, he said, she said things, but it just so it just so happens that they did believe, you know, Jim Ross's side of the story. And, and it, none of it was true. So I had major heat with Jim for costing me to this day. He cost me millions of dollars. Now, you know, regardless of whose idea it was, why would he say he likes me and he's friends with me and he was doing what he was told to do and then go out and rip me apart at that roundtable thing? And and then and then a DVD comes out says Heat Seekers and me and Bill X are on the cover of it. <laughs> so it was just it was just more to it than anything. And like I said, the bottom line is forget everything. Why would you not put the first match of the invasion in Atlanta, Georgia, in Ted Turner's backyard? That's the only defense I got to make people go, hmm, he's right. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. It's something else, man. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We have one last question for you, and this one comes in from the fans. Uh, We always take one fan question, so here it is. This is actually something I wouldn't mind knowing myself, too. One of the best skits, promos, whatever you want to call it, uh, ever with the NWO was in 1997, the fall of 1997. Yourself, Conan, Sean Waltman, and Kevin Nash making making fun of the Four Horsemen. I think it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Um, what, what were your thoughts? What were your thoughts on that? Because 
you know, it was like Arn Anderson gave you guys his blessing, and then all of a sudden, you know, p- pitched a, a shit fit over it for whatever reason. What I mean, what happened? Walk me through it. Well, here's what happened. I I had gone to the gym to work out, <clears throat> and when I got back, they told me what was kind of going on, and I walked into a room and I saw Kevin Ash dressed up like Arn, <laughs> and I went, I went, oh. My God, this is not going to be good. And I saw Tupac, you know, over there with with his, you know, with, with the player get up on, and um, and just and, and how they wanted to go with, you know, the angle and 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 you know, there's Conan as as Mongo and Michael, and they wanted me to be Kurt Henning with a ponytail and a ball hat. And all that, so it just, it just, it, to me, it seemed like it was just way too much. And but I was never told that we were like had got the blessing from them. It was more we were hiding in a room, so they didn't see us. So they couldn't be an argument or a fight or something. And then that night at the bar, it all kind of came out, and there was words and arguments and things like that. Nothing went to fisticuffs or fighting, but it was—I thought it was the best thing, one of the best things wrestling's ever seen. Um, but they actually, you know, looked at it like it was, you know, um, bad and, and um, you know, un, you know, uncalled for and all that, but. Really, man, we're talking about TV and ratings and, you know, doing things that were, NGBO did things that nobody else did, you know, and we were able to do it and get away with it, and it was cool. So, um, so really, I thought it was um, a great idea. I thought it really worked, and it gave us a lot of areas to go from there on with the heat between like, the horsemen and the NWO and et cetera, et cetera. So it just really did make a big deal. But I thought it was a fantastic angle. I thought it was a fantastic skit. And I really think this day is one of the best ones that's ever been done. Speaking of the four horsemen, one last question for you. Were you around? Because you, you were running with the tag team at that point with Two Cold Scorpio in 1993, October of 1993. You had you had already mentioned you know random trips to Germany and and other places. Were you on the tour and and part of that when uh, when Arn Anderson and, and Sid Vicious got that uh, scissors fight? It literally happened directly. My room was directly across from Arn Anderson's room. So and for some reason there were no eye holes. Look out your door. For some reason we're in Blackpool, England. And there's no eye holes that you can see out your door. So Arn and Sid had gotten an argument in the bar, and my wife was with me. And so I told my wife, I said, "Hey, let's go on back to the room, and um, you know, this is getting a little bit, it's getting a little bit heavy down here, you know." And so we went back to the room, and the next thing you know, Sid comes down with a chair knocks on Arn's door and says he wants to apologize. And instead, as soon as Arn opened his door, Crash hits him with a chair, 
Sid gets, I mean, Arn gets knocked back into his room, grabs the scissors, stabs Sid in the gut in the, with the scissors, and Sid hit him with a part of the chair and then stabbed him 18 times. So, um, it was a very, 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 you know, big deal. But Scorpio was a big part of that on saving Arn's life. So, um, it was just a big deal. But yes, I was on that. That was, uh, it was a crazy, crazy tour. Um, we had a lot go on on that tour where they flew over almost the whole company to, you know, to, to take care of us and, uh, you know, either fire us or, we thought we were going to get fired, you know, and, um, but, but somehow or another we made, made it all work and, and it all works out. I want to thank you again for joining us um, here as we wrap up this interview with Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell. How can the fans follow you on social media? Do you have a Twitter or a Facebook? How can they support you? Yeah, the, the best way website to MarcusBuffBagwell.com. That'll get you to my Instagram, uh, my Facebook, my Twitter account. It'll get you everywhere you need to go is going to MarcusBuffBagwell.com. And that'll get you to every, all my social media stuff and everything. And you'll be able to follow me. Well, that's awesome, sir. And like I said, uh, later on today when this interview goes live, we'll go ahead and we'll tag all those social media formats. For now, we want to thank you again for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Hey, man. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. Have a good day. You guys have a great day. You guys have a great day, too. Thank you. So that was Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell here on the beautiful outside deck of Keon Sports. Sun shining bright, and that is why we built the outside studios here of Keon Sports. For Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell, this has been Vince McKee. We'll talk to everybody again soon.